Hello, and welcome to the Continental Philosophy Now podcast. If you were on Twitter last night around 8.45, 8.50, you know that I sent out a request, a little poll, to see uh, what you all wanted to hear about in today's podcast. And the winner, at least initially, was Lefebvre, Henry Lefebvre, The Production of Space. So today I'm actually going to bring you two little podcasts. Um, one is based on a lecture well, it is a lecture that I gave uh, that sets up Henry Lefebvre's work. It's a 10-minute lecture that gives a history, a short history of conceptions of space, which begins with pre-Socratic and ancient philosophy, goes through modern philosophy, and then kind of uh, cuts off or ends where Lefebvre begins. Okay, so part one here, I'm going to give you the short history of concepts of space. And then part two, we'll take a look at Lefebvre's The Production of Space, the introduction where he sets out his framework. Enjoy! short history of conceptions of space. In this lecture, I will be introducing Henry Lefebvre's The Production of Space. And in order to do that, I want to give you a little bit of a sense of how different Lefebvre's thinking was on ideas of, of space by giving you a little brief history of the history of conceptions of space, which I'm going to divide into three areas. First, we have ancient conceptions of space from the Greek philosophers. Then we have modern conceptions of space. And finally, post-structuralist conceptions of space, of which Henry Lefebvre's work is one of the first. So let's start with ancient conceptions of space. Ancient Greek philosophy begins with a consideration of a single question, and that is, what are things made out of? And there were a number of pre-Socratic philosophers, and those were simply philosophers who came before Socrates arrived on the scene and began to teach on questions of ethics and politics. And these pre-Socratic philosophers all had their own theories about where things come from, what things are made out of. And they together developed the theory of the four elements. You may be familiar with the four elements. We have earth, water, air, and fire, usually in that order. And each of them argued for one element or a combination of the elements as being that out of which everything is made. So for example, the very first philosopher argued that everything is made out of water because he noticed that all living things are largely uh, require water and are largely made out of water. So water was thought to be the element out of which all things were made. But then a problem emerges that has to do with the element of fire, and that is that water puts out fire, and fire, of course, evaporates water. So it was argued that fire and all things that contained fiery, fieriness, the quality of fire, which is hot and dry, couldn't come from water because water was its opposite. So... Then different philosophers argued for a combination of the elements, 
and finally arrived at the idea that it couldn't be any one of the elements or a combination of the elements because of this relationship of contradiction and opposition, but that there must be some other substrate that both supported and made change possible. So the change that we see of things coming in and out of existence, of changing form, that there must be some other thing that wasn't necessarily a material thing that supported that change. And several different theories were developed about what this could be. But for our purposes, the most interesting one is the one developed by the atomists that is very close to kind of a prototype of scientific thinking. And the idea here is that everything is made out of particles that are, they called atoms, even smaller than the elements that could be identified in nature. And these particles were in motion in a void. And they um, collided with each other and bonded, and they, they were pulled apart, and that accounts for the different manifestations of different elements and of naturally occurring phenomena. That in which the particles collided and were in movement was called the void. Another name for the void was nothing. So then a huge debate emerged about whether nothing could exist because, of course, by definition, nothing is not. And, nothing, and that which is not can in no part be was uh, one of the arguments that was uh, given. So the very idea that there could be something that is immaterial or that is nothing was hotly contested. And the philosophers that came after the materialists had to, in some way, answer that question of what is that substrate which is being called the void or nothing, but which must have some sort of existence. The two most well-known Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, each developed a theory uh, about this nothing or the void. For Plato, he developed an idea of Cora space. And Cora is the mother and the nurse and the matrix into and out of which all things can come into and out of existence. And Cora had some very interesting properties of receptivity, that is to receive the elements into its medium and to allow them to exist in their own being and also of giving, that is of giving a place for things to emerge and to change and to develop and to pass out of existence. So Cora is a very interesting conception because it was kind of a step up from nothingness, that is it wasn't simply void, devoid of any properties whatsoever, but it had some very interesting powers. So it wasn't a material thing, but it was a, uh, an energetic, powerful thing. And it was something that was a part of nature and yet only accessible to us through its effects. That is, because there are things that move and change and come into and out of existence, we can suppose that there is such a thing as Cora and the Matrix. Aristotle was very interested and invested in denying the existence of the void. So he didn't believe that there was such a thing as void. Everything that is, is full of being for Aristotle. And so he developed an idea of space that is quite interesting and very different. We call it today's place as opposed to space. 
So he said, everything that exists has its own place, and that is what really space is. Place is an envelope that surrounds each thing, moves and grows with it, and goes out of existence with it. So in a way, each thing carries along with it its own spatial envelope or container. And this is the container theory of space. Now, each of these theories, both Plato's and Aristotle's, have difficulties that come with them, uh, and uh, debates went on about each of these theories, but we don't need to get into that for our purposes here. What I wanted to show was how the idea of space emerged, and also how different philosophers addressed it in really pretty different ways. What they all have in common, however, in the ancient conceptions of space is that space is a natural phenomena. That is, it's a part of nature. Once we get to modern conceptions of space, which we'll move to now, we will see that space becomes a supernatural phenomena. That is, space is not a part of nature, but is somehow removed from the natural world and accessible to us Again, only through our intellect, not through our sensibilities or our perceptive abilities. So let me give you two examples. First, we have René Descartes. Descartes is the father of modern philosophy, and he argued that there are two kinds of things, res extensa and res cognitans. And res extensa is extended being. That is the phenomenal world that we experience, the extension and the spreading out of being as far as we can perceive. And within his theory of res extensa, he envisioned being as a big matrix, into, uh, like a mathematical net that is cast in a cosmological way, and things come into and out of existence by changing form over time. The second philosopher that I want to very briefly mention is Kant. And Kant had an idea that both space and time were a priori structures of existence. That is, they were conditions for the possibility of all and any kind of being. And so space, again, is something that's not a part of nature, but it's a condition of the possibility for nature. We must presuppose or assume that there's such a thing as space and time if we are to accept what our senses tell us, and that is that there is being everywhere. Okay, so two examples from ancient philosophy and two examples for modern conceptions of space. If you want, you can go and read up a little bit more on any of these philosophers. But the broad point here is that whereas in the ancient world, space is very much a part of nature and it was studied as a part of a study of nature, for modern conceptions of space, and within modern philosophy, space becomes this supernatural phenomena, which is outside of nature. Once we get to post-structuralist conceptions of space, post-structuralist ideas will argue that space is neither natural nor supernatural. And of course, the question then becomes, well, what is space if it's neither natural nor supernatural? What is it? We can use our reason to argue that if something is not outside of nature, it's a part of nature, 
but is not naturally given, then it is somehow made or produced from already existing things. And so post-structuralist accounts will argue that space is made or produced, uh, not naturally given or supernaturally presupposable. But then the question is how? How is space made or produced? And Lefebvre, in the production of space, is the first to try to give a, an account that was a holistic account, a systematic argument for how space is produced. 